Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to everybody joining us online as well. And you woke up perhaps to the same news feed uh, that was scrolling across. We had another one of those nights slash days in our nation that I think warrants us as a body of Christ taking a time out and praying for the folks in El Paso who lost 20-plus lives in a Walmart shooting, something in Dayton last night, nine-plus lives there. And I think the latest data is 250-plus mass shootings in the last 250-plus days in our country. What should the body of Christ do? I think Psalm 34:18, when it says, The Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I think our role as a people of God is to take a moment and think about this moment, right? Think about families waking up today, living the kind of reality they never imagined having to live. Think about the churches that are gathering in those areas. Uh, think about the memorial services that are being planned now that as young as a two-year-old. Um, and then we need to pray for our nation, right? Clearly, um, we've got a lot of, a lot of needs and thankful that in the body of Christ, we can look to the one who sits enthroned over all the chaos and know that uh, somehow, some way, God is going to work something in all of this. So let's pray together for those situations. Jesus, we do just unite our hearts uh, thinking about those who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit this morning, uh, those waking up in El Paso, those waking up in Dayton and the surrounding communities, um, the ripple effect from this tragic loss of life and uh, Lord, just pray, I lift them up. I ask you to comfort them and give peace to them and their grieving. And I pray for the pastors and all those who are leading all the services, not only this morning, but all through the weeks ahead. Help them, guide them. And Lord, we pray, pray for our law enforcement, pray for our community leaders, uh, pray for our government officials, pray for our nation. Oh, Lord, pray that you would pour out your spirit on our country, that um, you would bring us to our knees to turn to you, to cry out to you, to heal our land. Clearly, there's a lot of brokenness and a lot of heartache. Only you, O oh God, can heal our land. Come and heal it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're in this long series on the life of David. I hope you're enjoying the journey with David's life. And we left David off last week at a time in his leadership where we, we called it one of those moments where he was taking a priority checkpoint that he had established his leadership, finally ascended to the throne after a 13-year waiting period of running and hiding in desert caves and running from his life, roaming for his life from Saul. And he finally gets to the leadership position and he says, where's the ark of God? The ark of God represents the presence of God to restore to the people of God and the city of God. And so David restores the ark of God to the people of God in the city of God. And it's a great moment. And there's this worshiping and this centering reality that's going on in the people's lives. And then today's chapter, we're going to, to look at this, this section where you could call it David's like the zenith of his leadership is 2 Samuel 7. So in, in, the, in the massive literature of the Bible, all 66 books, 2 Samuel 7 is at the top, towards the top of the stack for like one of those most important chapters in all of the Bible. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And this is the point where uh, David has ascended to the throne and he's actually experiencing peace and prosperity in such a way. It's like David the warrior, David the worshiper, David the leader, David the king, David's popularity and influence it is at its peak in 2 Samuel 7. 
It's really an amazing moment. And so the question for this morning is, what's the greater test for our character? Is it those seasons of adversity or is it seasons of prosperity? And I would argue that I think prosperity is the greater test. Let me say why I believe that. Now, both certainly are tests, right? Times of adversity are certainly trying and testing for our character. But I I would argue that I think prosperity might be even the greater test because when, when there's trouble in our life, when circumstantial chaos is lifted up in our life, in a sense, we're, we're forced into a posture of dependence on God. So when times are tough, when there's trouble at home, when there's trouble at work, when there's trouble with our health, when there's trouble with our finances, when there's just trouble on the, on the horizon of our life, there's this posture that we're brought into of depending on God. That's David in Engedi. That's David in the cave of Adullam. Uh, that's David running for his life from all of those places we'd been tracking. Thirteen years of David's life could be argued to spent mostly in adversity and mostly, mostly kind of being forced into this place of, God help me. And that's, a, that's actually a fruitful thing when you understand pain and suffering in our life. Think about the teachable moments that pain provides our lives. Not something we look forward to, not something we look more for of them, more of them, but something we look back on and go, I think the most painful seasons of our life probably are the most spiritually fruitful and the most teachable. And so they tend to thrust you into that posture. But what happens when the circumstances shift in our lives and it goes from trouble to what I'm calling today peace and prosperity? Like it goes from 2 Samuel chapter 1, where he's lamenting the loss of two loved ones, to 2 Samuel 7, where he's establishing the enemies have been subdued, and the ark has been returned, and the people seem to be pleased with his leadership, and the nation seems to be flourishing. Basically, across all fronts of David's life, it seems to be going very, very well. And I would argue here today is perhaps the clearest window into the height and depth and breadth of the interior world of David's life. Because when things are going well, you're not necessarily forced into the posture of dependence on God. You have to choose it. You have to make the choice. Because in my own life, when things are going really well, the temptation is to rely on myself. When things are going really, really hard, I'm kind of forced to relinquish self. But when things are going really, really well, it's easy for me to just kind of, and I suspect that's not just me, I think that's a bit of our human condition. When things are going really well, when it's comfortable and peaceful and there's prosperity and kind of all the horizons of our life are generally going okay right here. And so this morning... I want to present four questions to those of you who find yourself in the place of peace and prosperity. And if you're not there, perhaps look at it as the kind of questions maybe to ask when you enter into that kind of season. Because we will have seasons in our life that are filled like ziklag of pain and suffering or engedi of burning sand. And we'll have seasons like 2 Samuel 7 today, which is where we find these words, verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. 
Notice that, right? That, that has not been a lot of David's life to this point. Settled and at rest. That has not been the commentary for David since the Lord picked and anointed him as king. It has not been settling and he has not been at rest. He's been on the run fighting for his life for 13 years, but now he's settled and now he's at rest. And look what verse 2, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So, First two questions to ask in seasons of prosperity and peace are, what, what am I thinking about when I don't have to be thinking about anything? Where, where do your thoughts go when you're not forced to be thinking about anything specifically? Where's David's thoughts going? Right now, he's at peace, he's at rest, he's not forced into thinking about, how am I going to run from Saul, how am I going to survive today, what cave am I going to dart into? He's not forced into that today, he's at peace, he's at rest, it's settled. And where does his mind go? The ark of God, isn't that fascinating? The ark of God's in a tent and I'm in a palace, this is a problem. David's mind goes to the ark of God, which represents the presence of God to the people of God and the city of God. It like reminds him of the math, the new math of God we talked about last week, right? Everything minus God equals nothing. Nothing plus God equals everything. That's where David's mind goes. Without God, I cannot. Without God, we will not. That's where David's mind goes. Do you see how much revealing that is about his character? His mind goes to the ark of God. Where are, you know, one of the greatest freedoms we have in life is the freedom to choose what we fix our thoughts upon. It could, argue, could be argued to be the greatest freedom we have. What you choose to fix your mind and your thoughts upon is at your own disposal. It is your free choice to make. And when things are peaceful and prosperous, where your mind is, what are you preoccupied with when you don't have to be thinking about anything specific, I think is a really important question in these kinds of seasons of life. And for David, he's like, he's thinking about the ark, he's thinking about the presence, he's thinking about the new math of grace, that without God we cannot, without God we will not. And notice who he's hanging out with. Who's he talking to? Nathan, the prophet. Second question, a, a key question to ask in this is, who are we spending time with in these seasons of our life? Now, historically, kings didn't run around with prophets. They weren't buddy-buddy. They wouldn't have been IG followers. They wouldn't have been friends on Facebook. That would not have been kings and prophets. Why is that the case? Because for the most part, the kings wanted to do what they wanted to do, how they wanted to do it, and the prophets were trying to keep the character of God before the kings. So when God's ways came across the grain of the king's ways, the kings just wanted to push the prophets away. But here we see David hanging out with Nathan, a prophet of God, and talking about things like the ark of God. It's very revealing. It's what we talk about often around here. Who you surround yourself with affects who you become. David has surrounded himself with, with people like Nathan, people like Jonathan, people who love God, who know him well and who know God well. Those are sacred companions in our life. Do you have people in your life who know you well and who know God well? It's really important for our development. To surround us, who you surround yourself with affects who you're going to become. And here's David in the freedom of his peaceful season, his prosperous season, his mind goes to the ark of God and his friendship goes to a prophet of God. Boy, isn't that telling about his character? 
Do you see why the Lord describes him as a man after God's own heart? Not perfect. We've seen that before. Not an ideal life, but a real life. A man who's worshiping a real God, a man who makes real mistakes, a man who falls on his face but turns in real repentance. This is David. A man who's a mixed bag like all of us, who has great days and not so great days. That's David. And here we see David in a season of rest, in a season of peace, saying, I'm going to think about the ark, and I'm going to spend time with Nathan. And now look what happens, verse 3. Nathan says to the king, after David initiates, he's like, hey, I think this is an issue. The ark's living in a tent, and I'm in a palace. Nathan replies to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, that's music to a king's ears. Are you kidding me? When a prophet of God says to the king of God, whatever you have in mind, go do it. Wow. I mean, that doesn't happen very often in the Scriptures that way. And here you get a good picture, right, of David's heart posture towards the Lord, Nathan's confidence that David is doing what God wants. And so there's this sense, this building, like God's got, or David's got this great idea. It seems like a really God-honoring thing to do, like we need to build something for the ark because the tent doesn't seem very respectful, and we're living in the palace, and they're in a shack. And verse 4. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, so this is how it worked back in those days. God would speak to the prophet, and then the prophet would go to the king. Do you see why the prophet's job wasn't something people signed up for? Like, no one really signed up to be a prophet back in the day. Because generally speaking, your job was really hard, and if the king wasn't interested in what you had to say, it could make your life really hard. And then God would, so God speaks to Nathan, and then Nathan's going to deliver the word to David. In verse 5, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Isn't that great? So the Lord basically says, hey, David, you know, you've got all these great ideas to build me a house. I never asked you to build me a house. Like, did I ever ask you to build me a house? No, he hasn't really ever asked him to do that. And then the rest of the prayer, if you trace verse 6 all the way to verse 16, I want you to see there'll be tw there's 22 verbs in there of which God is the primary subject. If you trace that, God's speaking to Nathan. And I just put a, a summary in my notes. You can just follow along in your Bibles. Verse 6, where it says, I have not dwelt in, a, in the day I brought. Verse 7, I have moved. Did I ever say? I commanded. Verse 8, I took. Verse 9, I have been with you. I have cut off. I will make your name great. Verse 10, I will provide. Verse 11, I appointed the leaders. I give you rest. The Lord declares, I will establish. Verse 12, I will raise up. I will establish. Verse 13, I will establish. Verse 14, I will be his father. He will be my son. Verse 15, I took it away. I removed all the way through. Do you see this? God say, here's David full of all he's going to do for God. And God responds with, David, you've lost sight of all I'm going to do for you. Because sometimes what happens is we get so caught up in our grand plans for God that it interferes with his plans for us. Like David's all wound up about doing something great for God. It's like, wait a minute, David, I never asked you to do that. How about resetting who's in charge of this whole thing? Who appointed you, who called you, who commanded you, who provided for you, who protected you, who put you in this place, who subdued your enemies, who's put you on the throne, in the palace, in this season of peace. Of course, the obvious answer as Nathan is getting his hand on it is, you, Lord, you did all of that. And so he now gets to deliver this kind of message to David. 
which you could see now. We're going to learn a lot about David's response right here. Because David's full of energy and passion to do something great for God, which sounds so God-honoring. Build a house for the ark. Get it out of the tent and put it in a house. That sounds so great. And, David, and God's like, hey, I never asked you to do this. You can get so preoccupied doing a bunch of stuff for me, you lose sight of what I'm doing for you. And so the third question I wrote down in this season, so in seasons of peace and prosperity, we ask, where do our thoughts go when we don't have anything to think about? And who are we spending time with? Who are we surrounding ourselves with? And then thirdly, are we living reactively to God's initiating work? Are we living in that responsive and reactive posture? Look back at verse 2 where David says, I'm going to build a house for God, and then jump down to verse 11 where the Lord says, I'm going to build a house for you. You see, that's a very same language. It's actually the Hebrew word ba'ith. Ba'ith means two different things. A mechanical structure, which is the most common way we would view the word house. Or the second meaning to the word is an organic dynasty of sons and daughters. Think about this now. So a mechanical structure, David's preoccupied with a mechanical structure, and God says, yeah, I'm trying to move you from being preoccupied with the mechanical structure, and I want you to see how I'm building an organic dynasty of sons and daughters. Do you see this? This is called the Davidic covenant, by the way. Of which this room is a testimony to the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Because the zenith of which comes Jesus of Nazareth, who's referred to as the son of David, Jesus comes in the line of David, and the people who choose to follow Jesus become this dynasty of sons and daughters who worship the Lord in spirit and truth. That's us. We're a fulfillment of this, to saying, God said, I'm going to build this kind of kingdom. I'm going to build this kind of house. But David's focused on a mechanical structure. God's focused on an organic dynasty. And I think it's this picture, right, where God's probably saying, David, you're, you're preoccupied with building structures, and God's like, I'm about building people. And that's a good word for us today, right? Like, our structures today are not an end in themselves. Our structures are to be used to help people. We're thankful for, our stru- we're thankful for the physical building God gives us to worship and serve and move his purposes forward. We're thankful for this piece of ground and this building. Yes, but it can't be an end in itself. It's not just about the four walls and the structure. It has to be about helping people. Like, this structure is to be used to build and help and minister to people. It's to help single parents and foster parents. It's to help people caught up in cycles of addiction. It's to help broken marriages. It's to help young people get a hold of their holy ambition. It's to help help the elderly grieve losses. We're to help people. Our main mission is that, and our physical structure is to facilitate that. Same thing for David back here. It's not that structure is unimportant. In a few weeks, in several weeks from now, we're going to see God is actually going to give some instructions to build a temple. So there is a role for physical structure, but I suspect with David here and with the nation, he's wanting to make sure he gets implanted. It's about building people over and above building structures. So he gets that planted in first, and then the structure comes later. You see this? So eventually the temple will get built. It's going to be built primarily under Solomon's leadership. But the point is, right now, David's all fired up to do something like building a structure, and God's withdrawing the building permit and getting him to focus on building people. And for us, that we can't lose sight of this, that for us about building from the youngest to the oldest and all in between, building 
people. And now let's see how David responds. Can you imagine, one writer said slowing David down at this point is like slowing down a, a runaway, like a, a, a herd of runaway horses. This is exactly what it would be. Like this, David's energized and he's focused and he's moving ahead and slowing him down now. Let's see how he responds to this word from the Lord. Verse 18, what does David do? It says, then King David went in. Where would he go? Went in and sat before the Lord. Where do you think he went? Into the tent of God to sit before the ark of God. He went and sat before the Lord. Wow. You talk about a window into David's character right here. He went in and sat before the Lord. I like what Eugene Peter, I put this quote in your notes. Look what Peterson says about this. David sat. This may, this may be the single most critical act that David ever did. The action that put him out of the action. When David sat down before God, it was the farthest thing from passivity and resignation. It was prayer. It was entering into the presence of God, becoming aware of God's word, trading in his plans for God's plans, letting his enthusiasm for being a king with the authority and strength to do something for God be replaced with the willingness to become a king who would represent truly the sovereignty of God, the high king. And so this sparks the fourth question to ask, I think, in seasons of peace and prosperity when was the last time I let myself be stopped by God? You see, when adversity strikes our lives, in a sense, we're thrust to kind of, it, it reorients our lives and our life's put on hold in so many places in adversity and suffering and pain. We're forced to stop. But when things are going well, you have to choose not to charge ahead because your tendency is just going to be go. The Lord is with you. It's a great idea. Go. And then in that, in that going, if God steps across your path so clearly like here, what's your response going to be? Will you let yourself be stopped by God? Will you follow David's lead here and go and sit before the ark of God in the presence of God to seek his heart and say, Lord, what is it you want here? I thought you wanted to build a structure, but you're saying you want to build people. Well, what do I need to do with this? David stops. And in that, do you see the substance, the scaffolding of his interior world? Do you see how strong it is, how deep it is? Do you, I think you see the fruit of 13 years of wilderness wanderings. I think you see it coming to fruition right here. And then from verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter, it's David's prayer through 29. He records his prayer. Do you see that? So a bulk of this chapter is right where it's peace and prosperity David's got some grand idea to do, build a house for God. God steps in, speaks to Nathan, and now David sits, pauses, and now speaks back to God. And look what he says, verse 18 and following. David went in and sat before the Lord, and he says, quote, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? That sounds to me like the vocabulary of, man, of a man who's being stopped by God. If you keep tracing the prayer, you have 45 instances where God's name is being used in the prayer. 
his name like Sovereign Lord, God of Israel, Lord Almighty. It's either that or the personal pronoun used for God. 45 times in 12 verses, that's a man who's decided he's going to be stopped by God. That's a man who's choosing to yield and to trust, not to charge ahead in his own wisdom and strength, no matter how grand his plans may be. It's a man who's choosing to say, you know what, God stepped in the way here, and I'm going to sit, I'm going to stop, I'm going to yield, and I'm going to trust in the sovereign Lord's plans. Like what one Jewish rabbi, I think I put it in your notes, a Jewish rabbi said, I pray only when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. That's a good response, right, gang? David, he's learned that in the desert. He's learned, you know what? His whole life's just going to be a life of prayer. He's going to learn to depend on God and rely on God and sit before the presence of God. And whether he's in peace and prosperity or whether he's in adversity, I think David is passing a great test here by saying, you know what, Lord, I choose you. I choose to call upon you to let you stop my grand plans and to yield and to trust. And so, worship team, why don't you guys come back up? This kind of sets us up for our time at the communion table this morning. Um, In a moment, I'm going to dismiss you to the communion tables, and I want to dismiss you as a people of the Davidic covenant, a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. And I want to dismiss you under this banner for you to reflect, but maybe you're here and you're in a season of peace and prosperity, or if it's not that, you're just in a season of very ordinariness of life. Life's just kind of ticking along and rolling along. That's fine. You can put it in this category. I think these are four good questions to ask. If life is just kind of rolling along in a reasonably healthy manner, that things are just going generally okay, I think to look at this grid of these four questions and to say, which one's standing out to you this morning? Is it something with where your thoughts are going? Is it who you're surrounding yourself with? Is it learning to live reactively and responsively to what God's doing? Are you letting God kind of step in the way and and get in the way? Are you willing to stop and sit before the Lord? Or we can think holistically of this table, right? This table being set by the one who came as the son of David. And when Jesus came and we gave up his life, when he shed his blood and he was beaten and he was whipped and he was crucified, he was executed, by the way, fully innocent, Some of you come in this morning dealing with all kinds of things in your life where you just go, that's not right. Do you know this table is for those who say, that's not right? That's this table. The ultimate that's not right in the history of humanity is this table where Jesus was innocent and they killed him anyway. And he says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so perhaps this morning you may not come specifically in a season of of peace and prosperity, maybe you come in your own personal season of adversity. And if that's the case, this table is obviously set for all and everything in between. But you come to the one who can understand and empathize with the adversity or the prosperity. And in a moment when we gather and we file around to the tables, I want you to kind of soak in the visual of an organic dynasty of sons and daughters who are choosing to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. That's what God said he was going to build for David. Here we are in 2019 in Zionsville, Indiana. This is the fulfillment. We are it. 190 nations today. Two billion people who are gathering, guess what, as an organic dynasty of sons and daughters who are going to this table proclaiming 
we're going to worship in spirit and truth. God said he was going to do that for David. Was he true to his word? He's true to his word. And it wasn't about mechanical structure. It was about building and caring for people. And so if you've never taken communion with us before, I want you to know that our tables are open to anyone. You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to be a regular attender. But the scriptures are clear. You do need to have your heart in a place where you're coming to the table as an act of worship to Jesus. That you're a child of the Most High God, that you've given your heart to Christ, that you want to honor him with your life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you got it all put together. It just means you're coming to the table to the one who you know puts it all together. And you're coming tearing off the bread and dipping it into the juice as an act of worship to what he's done for you. And we've got two prayer areas set up. We've kind of pushed them off a little bit farther onto the sides to give a little more space today. So we're going to have an elder in each area. Seth Vaught's going to be over on this side. Scott Granati is going to be over on this side. And if you'd like to pray with someone, you've got some needs, you've got some things you're going through and you just want someone to pray with you, you just make your way over to those prayer areas. Maybe you've got a physical need and we want to anoint you with oil and we believe God still heals today. You're carrying some stuff physically, emotionally, relationally. Come, be prayed for for healing during this time as well. And then you'll see we've got two smaller tables set up. So we've got two fully gluten-free options. So we've got some feedback from the gluten-free families that our former way of doing gluten-free wasn't fully gluten-free because it was like intermixing with all the other gluten items. So I'm not fully understanding all of it, but I know that this is purely, completely gluten-free when you've got two separate tables, the smaller ones on both sides, all right? So those crackers dipped in that juice, I think keeps it all gluten-free for those who need that. And so we don't want that to be a hindrance to any. So let's stand together. I'm gonna pray for us. And the way this works around here at Eagle, this is your first time participating. In just a moment, you'll just kind of make your way to one side over here. And then people just kind of spread out all around the room in praying together, praying with their families, life groups, praying by yourself, going to the prayer area. And the worship team just kind of leads us through a, a time of music and worship together, all under the banner of this. We are an organic dynasty of sons and daughters of the Most High God who are choosing to worship Him in spirit and truth. And we come to this table and say, yes, yes, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood. We thank you whether in seasons of adversity and or prosperity, whether in seasons of great turmoil or great peace, thank you that we can come to this table just as we are and we can meet you. And you know what each one needs today. And I pray from this time of communion, as we gather around this table, I pray that you would minister personally into each heart and life. We do this as an act of worship now in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed to the tables.